there are a lot of times where we can deceive ourselves in thinking that um, as God thinks it is good, that we can be tempted to believe that those things are evil. And one of those times was uh, a time in which I was going through a great struggle inside of my heart. I had said some things, and I had wrestled with the things that I said. Um, and I um, struggled because I thought, worried about what people would think of me. I struggled about whether the thing that I was doing was right. But in the end... Um, I did what was hard, and that was just to ask publicly for repentance. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of times in today's culture and today's world that more people will be led to Christ through people who are Christ followers coming to repentance and publicly doing that um, more than any eloquent speeches that we can ever give. Um, I was just reminded of that this week as I saw a prominent leader just a few days ago um, just for a series of things that, I, uh, that he had said, and I'm not going to delve into it because I don't know exactly what he had said, um, so I don't want to misquote, but that led him to a time of self-reflection, a time of repentance, and a time of stepping back from his public sp- speaking and uh, ministry to self-reflect and to come before God. And, uh, and there was a friend of mine that had commented on Facebook, and, and he had just basically said he prayed that the Lord would just really be able to use that, that God would be glorified through this man's humility. And I think that there is something to be seen um, when we come as not as Um, people who are just bashing or people who are just um, a sense of pride about them, but that we come and really realize that there are good things in in that God has given us. And one of those gifts has been and is things like repentance, where the enemy would like to tell us that that is not something you should do, or maybe that's not something that you need to, to go through, or that's not something that you need to do um, on a daily basis. And I feel as the enemy does that, you know, a lot of times we're thinking about our pride, and we're thinking about our, um, just how people would think of us, or maybe we're just, uh, just really pushing for our agenda or our reasoning, and we don't want to be uh, considered wrong, and we don't want to be in that spot where we're asking and getting owed something, or we're asking for somebody to give us something that's not in our control to give, which is forgiveness. Um. And yet, at the same time, God has given us these gifts of repentance because these things are good, and these things are right, and these, these things lead us to the heart of God and not away from us, from him. And I think that's what the Pharisees in today's passage really lost sight of. They lost sight of, and they deluded themselves in calling the good evil and calling the evil good. They called God's gracious gifts such as those things like repentance and humility and trust in God as evil and not good. And today we're going to see a little bit about how 
the Pharisees had gone and they were, if you look at them, they had all the right, they all the right um, uh, desires. They had all the right um, um, uh, mentality in that maybe they felt like they were protecting their people. They had this sense. But they began to look through that and they began to spread a lie and demonize Jesus. The crowds began to see through the power and the authority of Jesus. He had just healed a man who was both blind and mute. He began to see, and then he began to speak. So as if the healing of the blind was, was, was not enough. As if any, Jesus had anything else to prove. He could have just been content in just healing this man who was blind. But no, he decided to go above and beyond that as a signature move of his messianic identity. And he healed this man. And because of this, the people started questioning, is this Jesus, the son of David, the messianic deliverer, the one who would bring the long-awaited kingdom of God? He would be seen as the one who would bring ultimate justice and triumph over his enemies. Yet they were caught up in these perceptions of the deliverer would be a military conqueror, one who would restore Israel back to prominence and crush their enemies. And see, the Pharisees, they grew stronger in their hatred and their denunciation of Jesus. And this was probably raising fears in the religious leaders that they were losing their hold on the people. Again, they had a protective aspect, but sometimes those things become so protective that they become so protective about that that it becomes an idol, and then they begin to struggle with control and power. I think it was also because they had a reverence for God's word, but they were afraid of this preacher from Nazareth who was healing people and showing unbelievable power. And so yet, out of a determined and yet a misinformed sense that they were protecting the people, they decided to take a stance, and that was to say that Jesus was in the league with demons. Now, you may be looking at this text and reading this from what Eddie just read, and you may be thinking, man, they are just so crazy to disbelieve Jesus. You saw somebody getting healed. You saw somebody doing that. I mean, there would be, it, would just, it would just be lights out. But before we do that, before we come into this text with a pretext, remember that all of us have rejected God. All of us were blinded and had called evil good, but good evil and when I was younger, I used to think that I didn't have a testimony because I didn't have these heinous sins in my life. Yeah, sure, I, I might have smoked at church one time, um, or I've joined a gang in middle school. Don't ask me about that. Um, I've shared my string of cuss words. I, uh, I went behind my parents' back and, and, and had a, a relationship and never told them, in fact, lied about it. And maybe I tagged on some trucks and some desks and some things um, <laughs> and beat up some kids at Denny's. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, don't ask me about that. Um, but I, I, I think I, I realized that they were just symptoms of my badness, um, not the essence of my badness. And I began to confuse those symptoms with the essence of it. Um, you know, we, we, we think that we don't have this testimony because we didn't, haven't done anything bad. But I will tell you straight up, I am a depraved and sinful person. And I, I think we demonize the Pharisees when we look at them and say, I'm better than them. The Bible says this all about us. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, it says, And we were all dead in our trespasses and our sins. And by nature, we were children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit of disobedience. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. It doesn't matter whether you've smoked weed or you smoked a pipe. It doesn't matter whether you have beat up somebody or gone to jail. It doesn't matter whether you have been an alcoholic or if you have injured somebody. What it all comes down to it is that there are, t- there are people in this world and we are all sinful people. We are all in this portrayal in what Paul tells us. So don't think that you're in the league with Pharisees. In reality, we were once before in the same league with them. And so today, do we believe that? Do we look past having this um, ethnocentric and even cultural mindset that we're better than the people that the Scripture tells us? And that we look at our own hearts, that we are probably those people that God is calling out for self-deception so, and for calling evil good and good evil. Well, today we're going to see how Jesus calls out the religious leaders for their self-deceptions. First, their fallacy and their favoritism, and then he's going to take the offensive. So let's take a look at the fallacy. Jesus, knowing their thoughts in verse, 20, in verse 22 after this, In verse 25, I should say, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Whether this is a measure of Jesus' sovereignty or that he had the capacity to be able to discern people's thoughts, we're not sure, but we see that Jesus, he just cuts to the very heart and he calls them out and saying, hey, if, if, if you, um, if Jesus, if I was using Satan's power to cast out demons, that means that he would be going up against himself, right? Satan would be fighting his, against himself in his own battle. But Satan is too far shrewd to fight against himself. How could he let this enemy gain ground if this was ever true? So he addresses the fallacy of their logic, of their thinking, in other words, they're so out in left field um, and so absurd that Jesus has to tear that apart and say that, you know, to, for Jesus to use the power of Satan is for Satan um, to basically shoot himself in the foot. And so that would lead to his enemy, uh, Satan's enemy at least, um, which would be God, uh, to win and get ground. And so the second thing in verse 27, verse 27, um, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Secondly, he calls them out for their partiality. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast out? Jesus' logic here is that if the Pharisees have given the authority to their sons to cast out demons, by whose authority do they cast them out if you're saying that I cast out demons by Beelzebub? You don't say that they are casting out demons out by the power of demons and the prince of demons, right? So really, your sons need to be your judges. Pharisees, you are playing favoritism. Then look in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus totally exposes the Pharisees' fallacious thinking um, and also their lopsided favoritism. And now he goes on the offensive. And he goes and scathingly denounces the Pharisees. And, um, and so, first of all, he has a really good theology. He has a good theology of what we call here at Hope, Genesis 0.5, in which there's two kingdoms in conflict. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of Satan. And a long time ago, God had created uh, Satan to be a perfect angel, one who was the lead worshiper, uh, the one that was probably second in beauty and power of all of his created beings. But then he began to see and think that he deserved the glory due to God, and he rebelled against God. God, knowing that to be the case, um, knew this was going to be happened, so he judged Satan and uh, changed his name to Satan and then cast him down and judged him um, along with a third of his angels. Um, and to this day, Satan and his angels are out on an offensive, trying to take down as many people um, and having them blind them um, to the gospel and to the treasures of him um, and to seek to devour people. But we know that's not a... Uh, we know that God and his angels and his angels are giving him glory and giving God the due honor due his name. And we know this is not a battle between two equal powers because Satan, he's a created being, and, and God, he is the omnipotent being. He is the independent one. He is Yahweh. He is, he is God. And he has no time. He has no limits. He is the God of all time and over all time, and he is the God over all creation. And so it's not a battle between two equal powers. If Jesus was using Satan's power to expel his own kingdom, well, there's really two answers here. Either you can be using this, the power of Satan, or you can be using the power of God. And so he would be defeating himself, which would be giving ground to his enemy, which would make absolutely no sense. So Jesus, by sheer logic, and because there's only two powers of being, there's only one power that can only have the authority and the power to cast out Satan, and that is the power of God. Really, we know that Satan is only as powerful as a, um, as a dog on a leash, and in reality, Satan is a defeated foe and will be defeated at the cross of Christ, which Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, will singly uh, single-handedly dealt a death blow to Satan. And Jesus, by his announcing, because he says this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying that the power of the kingdom, the eschatological kingdom that you've been waiting for, has come with me. See, Jesus is not representing his enemy. In reality, he's representing the Lord God himself, the one who is over all. And because of that, he's the only one with the credentials that has the power to take down Satan. And so he takes this analogy and he, he gets this thing, this story about how if you want to steal somebody's house or steal the goods in somebody's house, you first disarm the strong man. You lock him up, you bind him up first, 
then that's when you go out and you take the rest of their stuff in the household. In the same way in St. Dominion, if you want to go ahead and take him out, you bind him up. And Jesus was saying, I am that strong man. I'm binding up Satan. And I have done major damage to the kingdom of Satan. He has no power. He has no authority. And that's the power that inhabited Jesus, the Spirit of God. He was not the one that would only uh, announce a message. He is one that would demonstrate the power of that message and the power of the kingdom of God. And that power is, with the, is by the Spirit of God. And because of that, the kingdom of God has arrived. And that's where Jesus' exorcisms, that's where his healings validated that he came to bring uh, the kingdom of God and also the blessings of that kingdom. And now the Spirit of God that Jesus is proclaiming and that, is it, that he is using by his own power, he's saying that Satan's power is now weakened and limited. And just before we go on to that, I just think it's just amazing that when, when Paul says this, if the spirit of him who is God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who dwells in you. You have the spirit of the living God inside of you for all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord, where you have surrendered to his rule and you surrender to his authority and his reign over your life. And now you have the spirit of God resting in you that you are demonstrating by your very life that you are no longer a child of wrath. You are no longer have the devil's authority over you. You may be attacked by the enemy, that is true. But whenever you engage in spiritual warfare and whenever you are falling down into a deep pit and when you are struggling in life or you're struggling with depression or doubt or anxiety or worry, every single time you stand up and you say, but I am a son and a daughter of the living Christ, you are engaging in warfare and you are Showing the weakened power of the enemy. He proclaimed that the enemy has no hold over you. So understand that when you are speaking this and you are trusting in this, even though when there are times in which you're under spiritual attack, you are doing spiritual warfare. You are attacking the very dominion and authority that the demons and the enemy pretends to wield over this earth, but there is no power here because of Jesus and because of his kingdom. And that's why I think Jesus lays down the gauntlet. We sometimes read scripture and we think it's so harsh, but I think that's because Jesus, because he's so true, because he's so good, because he's so beautiful, because he's so great, he lays down the gauntlet, but it's a good thing because it's out of his heart because he knows that there's nothing else that will satisfy our hearts more than Jesus. Look with me um, in verse um, Verse 30, Um, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Um, And so what what he tells us is that there's no neutrality with Jesus. Jesus does not give room just to say that he's a teacher or a good man or a miracle worker or even an enlightened figure. You are either for him or against him. Any indecision counts as a rejection. And this is not nice news for those of, uh, of the world that has a very casual stance 
toward Jesus where we want to treat Jesus like a buffet and we want to see Jesus for only the nice things about what it says about Jesus or Scripture or the aspects of Christianity that we find appealing. But Jesus says here, you cannot submit to Jesus and all of what the Scriptures say about Jesus. You need to surrender Because when Jesus says, anybody who wishes to follow after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You cannot follow Jesus without dying to yourself, without dying to the flesh, without dying to the world, and dying to the power um, of the enemy. And so that's one thing that we need to ask ourselves are we dying? Is, can we look about a year ago or two years ago and can we see ourselves um, going through this long and slow process of death, of dying to our own desires and our wants and our sins and, and seeing in the meantime that we're not having a bad case of FOMO, we're not missing out, but that we are diving deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ that we would want only in him and choose only him because, um, because he's so good. And so we have to ask ourselves, we are either for him or we are against him. Let's go on and let's go to that bold and decisive statement in verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Well, what does it look like to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And just one word on that. I I do not want to take this lightly at all. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure probably at one point every single one of us has dealt with feeling that they were guilty of committing the unpardonable sin or blaspheming um, the Spirit. And so what exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Um, And um, can we commit that today? Well, when you look in the view of the larger context, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time rejection of the truth of the gospel. I mean, who, again, going back to the beginning, who of us have rejected the truth of the gospel? Who of us has rejected Jesus and his gifts? I think a lot of times as a young kid at camp, we'd always know the question that would make us be able to stay up late, and that is, what is the, what is the unpardonable sin, right? And... Um, and there'd be a point where we would just make so much light of that to the point where I remember one guy going into the bathroom and shouting and screaming at the top of the lungs that he rejected Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, we look at that very differently as kids to, uh, to today. Um, I, think, I think there's grace in this season. The Bible in Romans 10 tells us that for all who calls upon the Lord while he will be found will be saved. And therefore, who calls upon Jesus will not be disappointed. But the issue here in this context is that the issue is that the Jewish leaders were guilty of consciously, deliberately, intentionally rejecting the Holy Spirit and its ministry that led them to salvation. 
And this deliberate rejection of the gospel led them down to this permanent spiral where they were persuaded to such a view that what was good was evil and what was evil was good. And they were persuaded to take this, this type of view because that they had no chance of repentance, no chance of conversion or turning to Jesus Christ. Um, but they had made up their minds to call in spite of the evidence before him to call the kingdom of God, the beauty of his rule, the beauty of his name, and to willfully, consciously reject it and say that's the work of the enemy. And even when the kingdom of God was all in their power, they just refused to accept God's divine rule in the person of Jesus. So that's where Jesus said those sobering words that such people will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. This means forgiveness would never be in the cards for people who did this. There's no possibility in the Greek. It's saying not in this time, not in an eternity, never. They'll be shut off from forgiveness as long as eternity lasts. And so that's why I don't want to joke around about that. Because that is the most terrifying thing that I can ever think would happen to a person. Especially when friends or friends, now friends' parents have been passing away. People, uh, as we know, ERs are stacked. There's so many people dying all around us. Um, we have the gospel of the kingdom. And we get to herald this. Um, and so... I think that we need to not soften this at all. Um, the logical question is, who committed the unpardonable sin? I think that we can, we can soften it too much by saying that nobody in the post-Pentecost world can ever um, um, commit this. Um, but certainly there are people who are against the Scriptures and the Word of God that we were reminded again and again that this is maybe the situation that they're in. Um, as Jude 3 and 4 says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into an sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Again, there are, there are many people that the world, um, that may, may not look like Pharisees, but their hearts are guilty of perverting the grace of God and the gospel of God and calling it evil and immoral. And there are countless people who are turning aside to myths. There are countless people who are quenching the spirit. And a lot of them goes in, in between the four walls of the, of the church. There are a lot of people who are calling good evil and evil good, specifically the gospel of Jesus. And I think that's what we need to take a look at in verse 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, there's two trees that uh, perished in the storm. One was a sour orange tree, and the other one was a, was a, um, a really great fruit-bearing lemon tree. And we were obviously sad about one, but thankful for the other one that died. <laughs> because there was one that just pumped out sour oranges. 
other than zest and marmalade, it had no use. And that's what the Bible and Jesus is speaking here. There are two kinds of people. There are people who are sinful and out of there uh, produce fruit that are evil and bad. And then there are people that are good and that are uh, producing uh, fruits that are good. The purpose of this is not to say who is good or who is bad. It's just saying that if you are good, then you'll be producing good fruits, right? You are. You never speak out of character. And anything that you do or say um, will come out of your character. And so when Jesus comes against these and calls them out as the brood of vipers, you know, you might be thinking, you know, you might be thinking, brood of vipers, that's pretty mean, right? Um, the brood of vipers is talking about vipers who are deadly, but also when the baby or the mother hatches a bunch of babies, all these small things, these small little serpents are deadly, and they are also deceptive. And his harshest criticism was not for those who are outside the church, but on the forefronts and the inner, inner circles of the church. Instead, um, these religious leaders would use these man-made traditions to poison the hearts and the minds of Jews to hearing God's word and being saved, and then causing them to die an eternal death. And so you know what? Jesus reserved his harpest, sharpest words of criticism for the religious than the people outside. Listen to Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across seas and land to make a single proselyte. And when it became a proselyte, you became twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, I'm not going to go off and go off on all the bad things about the church, and I'm not trying to put a, a guilt trip on any of one of us, because I love this church, and I love what God is doing here. But I think the point of it is that your words and your, your, your actions flow out from what you do from the inside and who you are. And the Pharisees were held accountable for every careless word that they spoke. And these were flippant words that speaks volumes about who they were. And I think the Word of God tells us that we need to be careful and we got to make sure that even though we may not be guilty of committing the unpardonable sin and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, there is eternal weighty things that come out of our hearts and out into our words that can lead straight uh, to what the Pharisees have experienced his judgment. And I think this is what Jesus is saying here today, that we not be fooled about what kind of great hearts that we are and that we are out of the woods and we graduated out of sanctification and that we can, don't need to do the work of examining and rejecting those things that in our hearts that are evil, but that we gotta be constantly about being a people of repentance. Amen? A people of repentance because we know that ourselves, we would have been landed in judgment we were the nature of men, children of wrath. We were guilty. We had offended the most holy and awesome God by our sin and rebellion, no matter how that actually played out in our lives. But this is the awesome thing. God has saved us out of that. 
He has saved us out of that, so he's given us a picture of that, so that there's a God who cares more about his own glory, but also a God who cares about us and our sin, that if you are struggling with depression or struggle because you feel like you have committed an unpardonable sin, or maybe you feel like you haven't done enough for God, or you feel like you are struggling in sin, that there is hope for you. God gives us this text, this precious gift, to show us what he has rescued us from. He has rescued us from being depraved and sinful and children of wrath and from this unpardonable sin that probably waylaid all of us if it were not for the grace of the living God. And in, Paul says this, and I'll close with this, in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I just want to invite you to stand. And, um, and as the music team comes forward and the prayer team comes forward, I'd like us to think about uh, a couple things. Um, one is the beauty of the salvation that has been given to you and to I. Um, maybe you're waylaid by guilt and struggle because maybe you haven't been living and maybe you've been quenching the Spirit in some way. Maybe this week has been just a real struggle to get into the things of God. Well, I want to encourage you that there is grace for the moment and there's grace from our Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us out of our sensuality, out of our death and our depravity. And um, today, maybe he just wants to remind you of the grandness and the goodness of the gospel. Maybe there's some of us who are struggling through this idea of the unpardonable sin and maybe you just don't feel assured in your salvation and you just need to be prayed over and that the authority of Christ rests upon you and that you remember that you're a son and daughter of the living God and there's nothing in this world can change that. There's no power great enough to change that. Maybe you just need to be reminded of your sonship um, or your, your daughtership in Christ. And if there's anything else that we can just lift up in prayer and... Um, Maybe just confessing sin, maybe spending time in repentance or just praying through any difficult decisions that you have. Um, we would delight to be able to do that together. And so let us pray and uh, let's go to God as we come before him. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much that you have saved all of us. We were all in league with the Pharisees and we are all in league in full agreement with our sin. But God, that's where you said, but God, you've saved us and you've raised us into the heavenly places of Christ. And Lord, that we are secure in you, we're confident in you because you have saved us, you have ministered to us, you have redeemed us from the pits, and you've made us your sons and daughters and raised us up in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in our salvation. We would rejoice in the authority that we have as blood-bought sons and daughters of Christ. And I pray that if there's any one of us that is grieving the Spirit, I pray that we would walk in boldness and full surrender. God, do your work in this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name.